Welcome to Grit, Real Stories of Recovery. My name is Paul, and I'll be your host. Please note that this podcast is uncensored and may contain material that is not suitable for all audiences. Again, welcome to Grit. Real Stories of Recovery. My name's Paul and I'll be your host. And today we are here with Abe. Abe, thanks so much for joining me today. I really appreciate you taking the time to to share with us. Of course. Glad to be here. Tell me a little bit about your upbringing, your past, your history. Well, uh, I'm five of six children in my family. Pretty standard upbringing. My dad went to work every day. My mom, for the most part, stayed home and then eventually got a second job. I was raised in a pretty religious family. I was raised Mormon, but you know, white suburban upbringing, like nothing really special about it, but that's the way it was. I had my friends in the neighborhood. I went through all of my grades with all the same people that I knew, lived in the same house out in right on the border of Highlands Ranch in Littleton. My mom still lives in that house today. I played football in high school. I did auto tech when I was in high school. I had just pretty much the same same as anybody else, like nothing really special about it. So there was no drugs, alcohol, using, abuse, trauma in your background? Absolutely not. No, there was, there was none of that. Part of, the, part of the faith that I was brought up in was that even caffeine was not allowed. Like, I didn't know what alcohol was when I was a kid. I never saw my parents take a drink. I never saw anybody smoking cigarettes. Like, nobody in my neighborhood even did that stuff. I mean, yes, I had neighbors that drank, but for the most part, my whole neighborhood was a whole bunch of Mormon people, and I grew up with most of these Mormon people. And every once in a while, we had a neighbor that moved into the neighborhood, and they would they would drink, but it was just a casual thing. It wasn't anything that uh, I even took note of. I mean, I knew that they were having a beer. I knew what a I knew what a Budweiser was, and I knew that we weren't supposed to do that. And it wasn't it wasn't something that was part of my life ever. Like it was something that I was told that if I ever went and did, then it would take me to very very bad places. And I believed in that when I was little. But yeah, I, I didn't have any of that stuff around me. It's not something that it's not a learned behavior when it came to me. When was your first exposure to drugs or alcohol? How I guess what I'm asking is. When was the first time you started using and why? So the first time I actually ever took any sort of mind-altering substance, I think I was either eight or nine years old, and I didn't actually realize what it is that I was doing. One of my very good friends in high school uh, had his uncle living with them, and the outside refrigerator was full of Zima. For those that remember Zima, it tastes exactly like squirt. And squirt was my favorite thing in the entire world. I loved it. It was my dad's favorite drink, and it was my favorite drink, and I thought it was awesome. So one day, my friend Chris offered me a Zima, and I thought it was just a regular soda. And then halfway through it, he told me what it exactly was. Well, at that point, I didn't think that it was anything bad because I didn't think anything was bad happening. Like, I hadn't experienced any of those consequences or any of those, like, demoralizing things that the church had told me was going to happen. And quite the contrary, I felt pretty damn good. And that was going to be my next question. What was the first time like? The first time was three Zimas. And I can't remember if I was eight or nine years old, but I imagine that I actually 
before that age got pretty inebriated. Parents weren't home. His uncle wasn't home. We used to go play in this place, go play in this creek. Uh, we would go crawdad fishing and catch fish and frogs and all that other, you know, this typical stuff that young eight, nine, ten year old boys do. So by the time that it was all done, it was just a really good day. And I had a new physical experience that I hadn't had before, but it wasn't negative in any way, shape or form. So did you continue to use at that point or was there a gap in time until your next use? My next use was my brother is, oh, four and a half, five years older than me. So um, he left the house when he was 16. So that would have put me right around... 11 or 12 years old. I don't remember so wait, exactly. Did he run away from home? No, he didn't. He didn't run it. Well, my brother was, I guess you could label him as a, the black sheep in the family. He was the rebel. He was, he was the rebel. Like he didn't really fit in, in many places. He, he did his own thing. He did BMX biking. He started hanging around with the crowd that I was told that I was never supposed to hang around with. And so when it came to him being inside the house, my dad and him never got along, so he eventually just said, okay, I can go do this on my own. And that was around 16, 17 years old. So I think he was 18 years old when he convinced my mom that we could go on a camping trip together. And he had this stripper girlfriend. <laughs> that was a disaster. But we went camping together, and he asked me, like, have you ever drank? And I said, yeah, of course I've drank. I mean, I wasn't completely honest with him. And I said, yeah, I've, I've drank it a couple times. And so he asked me what my favorite stuff was. And I'd, I had no idea. I said, well, I like the sweet stuff. So on this camping trip, he brought a bottle of Jack, a bottle of watermelon pucker, a bottle of apple pucker, and a whole bunch of Coronas. So the second time that I drank was with my brother. And I was in my early teens. Did you feel pressured to drink or did you want to drink? I wanted to drink, but I also wanted to be at the same level that my brother was at. Like I wanted, I wanted to be with my brother. Like I wanted to experience new things. I wanted to see what his life was about. I wanted to see, you know, the things that he was doing that made it so he couldn't be at home. As, as How time. old were you again? 12, 13, right around there. Maybe 14, something around there. It was kind of blurry. That night was a big blur. So we were on this camping trip and it was myself, my brother and his girlfriend. She proceeded to get like really, really fucked up and they got into a fight and an argument. And so I walked away with the bottle of pucker and I finished that entire bottle of pucker myself. The next morning, I mean, I drank myself to the point that I, I don't remember what was going on for the rest of the night. The next morning, they were still not doing very well. So I'd I grabbed another bottle and it went off to the woods by myself. But wait, wait, wait. How did you feel when you woke up after having drank a whole fifth of pucker by yourself? You were okay? I was okay. Like I didn't, I didn't, I didn't start actually getting any sort of next day repercussions until I was in my mid twenties. I would say 23. I didn't start feeling hangovers or anything. Or nausea, Nothing. vomiting, none Nothing. of that? Nope. No Shit, negative I threw, consequences. I threw up the first time I drank. I, I'm pretty impressed. No, I didn't. I didn't throw up. I didn't feel bad. It was just, it was like waking up the next day. It wasn't. It wasn't anything bad. Like all those things that I was told was going to happen, 
weren't happening to me. So I thought it was all untrue. So that just reinforced the behavior, yep, huh? Absolutely. There was there was no reason for me to stay away from this because all the evil that I was told was going to come into my life, that was all bullshit. Like it didn't it didn't fucking happen. I woke up the next day, sun was shining, they were still arguing. I was like, screw it. That was fun last night. I'm going to keep it going. I remember being dirty and hot, but besides that, no, it was a good day. So did that give you the impetus to keep doing that or was there another, you know? Oh, no. From there on out, it was it was seeking that behavior. I mean, it was seeking that. What was <clears throat> the best experience that you can remember when it was good? Before you started accruing consequences and problems. Oh, it was the best experiences was probably in high school with all my Mormon buddies that discovered that this actually wasn't a bad thing, too. Like we used to go on campouts and we used to do things with the Boy Scouts and stuff like that. I got I got fucked up with all these guys. There was no reason for me not to. Like all these other guys that were my age and just a little bit older, they were doing it too. And so I kind of looked up to those people and I, I went and did that with them. So there was a couple times that I was actually on church campouts and we were smoking pot and, you know, drinking Jack Daniels behind the backs of our fathers, our scoutmasters, our leaders, our bishops, we, we were doing all of that. And there was probably a feeling of bonding and belonging. Absolutely. Talk a little bit about that. Absolutely. Like before I got along with these people, but once alcohol and, you know, some minor drugs were introduced to it, I didn't just, I didn't just hang out with these people. Like I started to get to know these people, like all those little secrets that you keep away from each other. You all became like a brotherhood. It all came together and there was nothing that we didn't talk about. There was nothing that we didn't share with each other. There was nothing. I mean, it was it was a feeling of being closer to people that had no blood relation to me than I'd ever had when it came to actually knowing my real family. Like the bond was strong and we we went hard at it for a long time. So what was the craziest thing that happened while it was still good where you look back and go, holy shit. I can't believe we did that. I can't believe we lived through that. I can't believe I'm not dead or in jail. But you still look upon it with a, as a fond memory. Okay, I've got several of those, and that's all in my all in my late teens. So with these group of guys that I was, eventually we were all right around the driving age. I hadn't gotten my license yet, but these guys were a year, two years older than me, and they had gotten their driver's license, and we had. Uh, kind of like this international club. And when I say international, I mean international harvesters, like old army trucks. And we'd build these things up, sitting on three, four-foot tires. And we used to go camping all the time. And there was this one guy that didn't have a four-wheel drive. He had a little Nissan with a camper shell on the back. And it was only two-wheel drive. But he put the big tires on and everything. And we were all drinking. Everybody was drinking, the people driving, the people going up, people, everybody was, was all drinking. Half of them were smoking pot, but I wasn't really ever into that that much. And my buddy Jason and I were on the back of this little dinky Nissan pickup truck with oversized tires on it. We were doing four-wheeling trails. And so on the top of that camper shell, there was, uh, I guess you could call them like the smallest ski racks that you could imagine, like the stock stuff that comes on cars now today. And so we were hanging off the back of this truck, standing on the bumper. We were all drinking Bacardi Limon. That was our big go-to. To this day, I smell anything lemon and I want to 
I want to shoot myself. It's disgusting. But we were all going four-wheeling, and because he couldn't go very – he didn't have four-wheel drive to get up these trails, he just had to gun it. Like, he didn't have the crawling power as everybody else. He just had to gun it. So Jason and I were on the back of this Nissan hanging on to this rickety rack, and he was gunning it up the hill, and he hit this bump, and we were just completely sloshed out of our mind. The ski rack breaks. We've got this ravine off to the left. I hit him in the chest with the ski rack as it breaks off. We both go rolling down the hill, and I still have deep scars in my, my side from this today. And this is now... I mean, I'm 38 years old now, so this is, you know, 22 years later. That was a fun memory for me. Once we actually got back up the hill and everybody brushed themselves off, like they they took a, uh, a snow scraper brush and was scraping the gravel out of me. And then we poured Bacardi Limon on it so we wouldn't get infected from it. Like stupid shit. Fun stuff. We used to do stuff like that all the time. I know that could have fallen sound, off that ravine. We could have fallen off that and we could have gone down like – my friend Doug that was there with me, we were picking picking cactus out of his ass. He was on the back of the thing too. Like, <laughs> I mean, we were we could have all died that day. Like the ravine that was off the side was probably at least a hundred feet. Like we got stopped by trees. Our bodies hit the trees as we were going down the side. That's how we stopped. We all came out bloody. But you know what? It was one hell of a time. We had and you probably awesome talked time. about it for weeks. I still tell people about it. Like when somebody sees me with my shirt off and they're like, what's that scar? And I'm like, oh, I got a story for you. Absolutely. Let me sit down and tell you about this story. Absolutely. So it sounds like for years, this was a lot of fun. Yeah. When would you say it turned for you? Like you had alluded earlier to having your first consequences. Yeah. So another thing about me, I'm also being raised in a Mormon family, like there's certain things that you are and certain things that you're not. And what you are not in a Mormon family is a homosexual. So even at this point, I hadn't come out to any of my friends. And I knew this when I was very, very young. And I'd been hiding this the entire time. So when things started to get like bad for me was when I started drinking to hide that from everybody else. I had had some you know, one-off experiences here and there in my late teens. But when it came to my family, I didn't want them to know about that because I was ashamed of it. And uh, that's when things started to get bad. But that community, the gay community, is all about drugs, alcohol, and having sex. And you know what? I fell right into it. Absolutely. Fell right into it. I started going to gay bars when I was... 19 years old with a fake ID with men that were way too old to be even be looking at me. Um, and I knew that I wasn't supposed to be doing these things. Like I hadn't totally accepted where I was supposed to be in life, where I hadn't even totally accepted that whole portion of who I am yet. And so I used all of those things to drown it out. And that's when it started becoming really bad, really bad. So what were some of the consequences that you started having? Waking up in strange men's beds, not knowing what I did before, knowing what I did the night before, not knowing what I did for the three days before. Um, my mom and I have always been pretty close and her just worrying and worrying and like calling me and texting me and like breaking her heart. I did that over and over again. 
wasn't supposed to cry during this, Paul. So <laughs> okay, man. Um, when I got into that point, I didn't have any solutions for anything else besides turning to drugs and alcohol. I didn't have any coping mechanisms. So at that point, you started using to what I hear you saying is kind of numb some of the feelings you were having about your mother and yourself and your life situation. Yeah. Like, I didn't want to deal with it. Like, I didn't want to deal with it at all. But you know what? I didn't want to go out partying with these guys all the time. But that's what I knew. It, it was the it was the it was the fake camaraderie and the fake the fake feeling of family with people that didn't give two shits about me. Mm-hmm. But you know, I was 19, 20, 21 years old. I was a good looking dude. And there was a lot of a lot of people that had interest in me. And every single person that had interest in me was also drinking, using. I mean, that that's the MO when it comes to young gay life. Like it's drugs, alcohol, and sex. And so that's what it was. And I, I, I didn't even care about like trying to progress myself or like get out of a bad situation. It was just, okay, well, fuck it. Do it again tomorrow. Do it again the next day. Don't have to deal with this. Let's just go out and party. So how long did you live this life? Oh, <laughs> off and on for a long time, for way too long. I, I couldn't put a number on it. So during that period, you obviously probably did some pretty crazy shit. I asked you earlier, what was one of the craziest things that happened to you that you remember fondly? What was one of the craziest or most dangerous things you remember where you wish you could have taken that back or it hadn't happened? There's a lot of that stuff too. You know, I'd I'd gotten in some pretty, pretty toxic relationships with people that I would look at today and say, what the fuck is the matter with that person? Eventually, I mean, I, I wasn't able to keep a job very well. I mean, there was a company that I worked for and it, it they put up with me for a very, very long time. But eventually the, the drinking and the partying and the self-loathing and the everything else like got to the point that nobody wanted to put up with me anymore. Like work, family, friends, they all, they all disappeared. But you know, I was always able to get into some sort of a relationship. And one of these relationships, my main thing was, was alcohol. And then once I got alcohol, I would, I would like to bring prescription painkillers into it too. But I didn't ever really seek out drugs as a drug addict, I think. And maybe I'm getting this wrong. But I was in a relationship with somebody who was a full, full-on meth addict. And it became very physically violent. It became very demoralizing um, because I couldn't hold a job and I was with him instead of, you know, trying to progress in life or like going out and find a new job. I was like, fuck it. This guy's making money selling meth. Bet you I can do that too. And that took me into some very, very scary, dark places. Like that took me to places in addiction that I didn't even know existed. Give me an example of one of those. Like going into... Going into this fucking meth house with people that look like they should be dead, like scars all over their face and picking themselves apart and like having sex with random people on a stained mattress on the ground. Like that's just, that's just disgusting. I didn't ever want to be in that sort of stuff, but that's where we would go to sell the drugs in those places. Like these people didn't care. 
They didn't care at all. Like you would become attacked when you came into these places. They would try and t- they would try and take you down. They would try and kill you when you went in there. Like we would go in there strapped up. We'd have guns on us. We'd have knives on us. And this was just so we could make 40 bucks. Very, very scary, dark places. I didn't even, I didn't even know existed. And it's, it's part of, part of some people's everyday real life addiction. That being said, I'm not going to say that I didn't partake in it myself. I did. (laughs) And then the craziness just got, just got 10 times worse than I ever thought it would ever be. Like for the brief time that I was using meth for like six months, I didn't even know those, that world existed. And it's, it's fucking scary. It's terrible. The people in that, when they're in active addiction, they are fucking scary. I didn't ever want to do it again. I didn't, I didn't want to go into these places. I didn't want to do any of this stuff, but I felt like I had no choice. I was with somebody that this is how he made his money. I wasn't able to hold down a job. So this is what I had to do. And it sucked. You felt trapped. Absolutely. Absolutely. I felt I, I went into places that put my life in danger and I threatened to put other people's life in danger over 40 fucking dollars. Like, what's $40? It's nothing. Ugh. I mean, I feel gross just talking about it right now. Did it in any way make you feel better about yourself for just being an alcoholic? No, because at that point, I wasn't just an alcoholic. At that point, it didn't matter what you had. Like, you could give me ecstasy, you could give me cocaine, you could give me meth, you could give me heroin, you could give me whatever you wanted. And it didn't matter like if somebody else was doing it and it was going to take me out of my head and out of my mental space that I got myself into fuck it do it so what started as something fun progressed to something really scary incomprehensibly demoralizing right and we we hear folks talk about the progressive nature of the disease and it sounds to me that you just uh, painted a picture of exactly that. So let me ask you, when did you first realize, hey, man, I should probably fucking stop? First time that thought occurred, I was, <laughs> I was uh, living on 21st in York. Big, huge house, opened up to City Park. We were all having a good time there. And uh, for those that know Denver, you also know that right up the street from there is also the biggest AA house, York Street. And... Uh, I thought that York Street was a frat house. And I went by York Street one night because I'd, I'd seen them. Like, it was in my neighborhood. We walked the neighborhoods. We partied, all that fun junk. And there's always people on the front porch with drinks in their hand and smoking cigarettes on the patio. So that's a frat house. I showed up to York Street with a, with a bottle of Jack and wanted to go join their party. Yeah. Yeah. How did they then, react to that? I mean, they were, I mean, obviously they weren't having a party and they weren't inviting me in either. Um, I was inebriated at the time. And I, at that moment, I thought, you know what? Maybe I'm not doing something right here. Like they were, they were nice to me and they, they told me what the place was about and that they should, I could maybe consider coming here. But at this point, I hadn't thought that I had any sort of a problem. It sounds like that was the first time you thought considered the possibility yeah you continued you described the progression and some of the horrific consequences that you had when was the first time you said to yourself i'm stopping when was the first time you tried to stop probably after my first dui my first of four duis 
you know, obviously I was, I was terrified when that happened. Like I had been arrested before, but it wasn't like arrested with consequences before my first DUI. I, uh, I thought, you know what? I'm, I'm 22 years old. Why, why am I getting a DUI at 22 years old? Why am I having to go to jail? Like that's when the consequences actually started to set in. And I thought that I should maybe have to do something. I didn't do anything about it at that point. Like I kept on drinking, but first time that I thought, Hey, maybe this might be a problem. Yeah. I was right around that point. Where and I had you to obviously start... kept dr driving while you were drinking because you accrued three more DUIs. Absolutely. Yeah. I got my license taken away when I was 21, 22 years old, right around there. And I didn't get it back until, you know, two years ago. And I'm now 38 today. And in that meantime, there's three more DUIs on top of that. Not only did I have complete disregard for the law, but other people's safety. Like I said, fuck it. I don't care. I'm going to go out and do whatever I want to do. And a lot of that was drinking and driving. Like I would have other people register the car that I had so I can drive around the car legally or legally rather. See him making air quotes. How many times did you go to jail? Oh, I, I can't even tell you. I don't know. I don't know. Um, I know that all combined together, I've spent about four years of my life in jail. Just over drinking and driving. And just not, if you added up all the days. If you added up all the days and like the different trips to Denver County or Arapahoe County or however long I had to stay for this probation violation or the nine months that I was on work release for my second or third DUI, like all that combined together, just because I wasn't willing to give up the drinking, right around give or take four years. How many times did you stop and then start again and stop and start? So I had, I had made a half-assed effort to stop sometimes. Like, I'm not going to drink this week. Yeah, it lasted three days. I mean, I'd gone to detox more times than I can remember. Like, I knew the people at Denver Cares by first name, and they knew me by first name, and they knew how much of a fucking pain in the ass I was when I went there, too. <laughs> um, the first time that I actually started to get a real taste of what recovery was was right around my second DUI. I I, uh, I did some pretty bad stuff. Like, I I was speeding past the hospital really, really drunk, and uh, I was told that I grazed an off-duty police officer as I was going by. Then I, I realized that I could actually hurt somebody doing this. Like, it wasn't just me being stupid and driving on the road. Like, obviously, I still thought that I was indestructible or that I just didn't give a shit. But I had to go away for, you know, a fairly long period of time on that one. And uh, that's the first time that I got into long-term recovery. I went through the Salvation Army ARC, went through their seven-month program, and, and I maintained a number of years of sobriety after that. What did you do to maintain that sobriety? Huh, everything that you're supposed to do. 90 meetings in 90 days, work with a sponsor, take other people through the work, stay engaged, do everything that you're supposed to do. And when I was doing that, it was working really, really well. But eventually, four years later, I decided that uh, I was going to start pulling away and I was going to start taking things back. And when I say taking things back, I mean like I was going to start deciding what my afternoon was going to look like instead of going to a meeting or instead of going to meet with my sponsee or to go meet with my sponsor. I decided that, you know what, I'd had enough of that shit. So I went out eventually drinking again. How did that happen? Like what, what was the first <clears throat> time that you had the urge to drink and what was the thought process 
that led you to pick that drink up? Sure. I was living with somebody. Um, I was in a relationship with somebody and we'd, we'd had a, a fairly decent relationship. We were both in recovery. We met each other in recovery and it was, you know, rainbows and butterflies for a long time. Um, he was not an alcoholic. He was a meth addict and he had three years of sobriety under his belt at this point. And then I was actually working as a sober bartender and I was doing really well. Like I was in great physical shape. I was still pretty young. I was, if I do say very attractive. Um, and we both were in that, in that situation. And he decided that, uh, he was able to drink because alcohol wasn't his problem. And so, you know, I was like, yeah, all right, give it a go. We'll see where it's at. I wasn't drinking at this point. I was more scared for him. I was still in that mentality that, you know what, this mind altering substance is probably going to lead you back to your other thing. And I, I was going through that process because I didn't want to see him get hurt. I don't want to see, I didn't want to see him fall down that hole. But he was insistent. And so he would come in and drink at the bar that I was working at all the time. And this is all about a six, eight month process. Uh, eventually that led to him smoking pot. And then I was, you know, living with this guy in love with this guy and seeing that he was able to do this and not have to suffer the consequences for it. Granted, alcohol was not his thing. He never called himself an alcoholic, but it didn't take him back to that ugly place. And I saw that it didn't take him to that ugly place. So I thought maybe, you know what, maybe I was just young and immature and that I didn't have the social tools. I didn't have the spiritual tools. I didn't have, you know, the right upbringing. I didn't have any of that stuff that whatever. I filled my head with garbage that I decided that, you know what, maybe I was just young and dumb. And you know what, I'm going to give it a go again. So one night when I wasn't working at the bar, I went into that same bar with my boyfriend at the time. And I sat down with, there was other people who knew me in recovery, working in that same bar, who had had like six years sober. And I said, hey, I want a blue moon. And that's where it started. It wasn't until I got into that one toxic relationship that I alluded to that it got bad. I was still able to maintain that job at the bar, but now I was drinking in that job in the bar. So, you know, my performance started to go down, but it didn't really, shit didn't really hit the fan until about two years after I picked up the first time. But then when it hit the fan, it really fucking hit the fan. Like zero coping skills, zero friends, zero family, zero, zero anything to reach out to besides alcohol and that fucking douchebag I was with. Mm -hmm. And when it did get bad, it got really, really bad. Like I get emotional just thinking about it because that's not the person I am. Yeah, I can tell. So what made you finally stop? What was the thing, you know, because I've known you for years and you haven't drank or used. What was the thing that made you say, I'm done? I was fresh out of that toxic relationship that we, we talked about where I was dealing drugs. Um, and it got really, really bad, like to the point that we gotten into a fight and it was about me, uh, not wanting him to do this anymore and like me trying to be savior for him and like stop him from going out and doing this because he would leave it he'd leave for four or five six days at a time and it was it was absolutely heartbreaking to me and so he came home one day and he had like a ziploc bag like a gallon ziploc bag full of meth and i tried to take it from him and i tried to like take it from him and flush it down the toilet well <laughs> he didn't own that meth there was people that owned that meth. And, uh, and it got to the point 
between our our fight at that time that he took his belt off and he strangled me till I passed out and left me in the bathtub. Um, when I came to from that, I was absolutely broken, devastated. Like this man that I supposedly loved just tried to kill me. I left that situation. I went to my mom's house. Like she begrudgingly brought me back in. I mean, she saw that there was, there was nothing left to me. So my brother was also living in my mom's house. He's five years older than me. And he, you know, he'd fallen on some hard times and he'd struggled with his family. And it was my brother, his wife and, uh, and their kid there. My brother and I don't get along in any way, shape or form. And I was still drinking all through this, even though I promised my family I was going to stop. I'm a very neat and tidy person. Things have their place and you need to put things in their place. And if you don't have them in your place, then it creates chaos. And I, my dad was the same way. My dad's been dead for now, 18 years. <clears throat> and my mom, you know, my mom and my dad worked really hard to keep this house nice and clean. And my brother was not that way. And so I got really, really drunk and I went through the house and I destroyed a lot of his shit and uh, went up to my room and fell asleep. And he came home and we had, we had a fight and I slept with a, I wouldn't call it a machete, but I'd call it bigger than a pocket knife right next to me. And I took a swing at him. And I almost killed my brother. The next day, I, I called Vincent and did an application for Step Denver. So what was it like surrendering and coming into a facility that's supposed to help you stop drinking and using? Honestly, at that point, I was so exhausted and just so like lost in what I was supposed to do. This was coming into this place was a godsend. Nobody wanted anything to do with me. I mean, I'm almost five years sober now and I still haven't spoken to my brother. He's had two kids since then. I don't, I've never seen him. So what was the early recovery process like? Once you got through the fog of, you know, the, the mental and physical detox, what did your life look like? You know, honestly, it actually looked a lot better than it had looked in the past two years. So I was I was happy where I was at. I was living in a, dude, in a place with 60-plus dudes, like living in a dorm bed downstairs where I had a really overweight guy that snored really, really loud to my left and dude that had horrible BO to my right, and I was happy. Like I was happy to be there. I was absolutely content. It was it was beginning to rediscovering who I was again. The early parts of recovery <clears throat> was better than the last two years that I was living before. Even in even in a communal living environment. I was starting to feel happy again. Like, yes, I've had to deal with a lot of stuff and I've had to make amends and I've had to do all that stuff and a lot of that stuff I did early in recovery. But that was still leaps and bounds better than where I was. What were some of the things you did in early recovery to kind of get your, keep your momentum going and rebuild your life? Everything that my recovery support manager told me to do, which was go to the mandatory in-house meetings, go out and find a sponsor, find your outside meeting groups, get phone numbers from people, 
Go to 90 meetings in 90 days. Do everything that you are supposed to do in recovery. Because even though I hate I hate euphemisms, I hate meeting makers make it. I hate the do 90 meetings in 90 days. I hate it works if you work it. But you know what? Every single one of them is fucking true. That's why they're cliches. Yeah, I hate them. I hate them. But you know what? They work. And I hate telling people that they work because they actually do work. So that's that's what I did. Like, and eventually I got I got to the point that people could trust me again. Because that... How'd that feel? That was awesome. That was absolutely awesome. Who was the first person that you realized, <laughs> wow, this, this person trusts me? It was another resident here. Like, he told me a secret about something. I was like, how does he know that I'm not going to go spread this around? I was like, wow, this dude actually trusts me. That's It's been a long time because every single trust bridge that I had ever built had been burned and pissed on. Like, there was no going back and rebuilding it. And I'm still suffering some of those things today. Like I said, I haven't talked to my brother in five years. Mm -hmm. Getting trust back, even in very small amounts, it made me feel like I was I was actually able to do this again. Building back up once you've relapsed or gone out or whatever it is that you want to call, that's, that's the hard shit. Like, actually asking for help once you get to that point, that's easy. Doing the actual work. That's exhausting. It's exhausting. It's worth it, but it's exhausting. So what's your life like now? <laughs> uh, my life now. I could not ask for a better life now. I really couldn't. Like, I, I get to work with great people every day. People that all have the same, well, not every single one of them, but people that all have addiction issues. Like, I go to work and I can't bullshit, I can't bullshit somebody. I can tell when somebody's having a bad day. They can tell when I'm having a bad day. They can see when I'm starting to go down this maybe semi-self-destructive path and put me back on. I have a relationship with a man that I absolutely love today. And there is nothing toxic about it. <clears throat> I can do whatever I want today. I, 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 can, I can go on vacations today. That shit doesn't happen when you're drinking and using. Not when you get to the point that I got to. I've got a great house. I've got a great partner. I've restored relationships with 90% of the people that actually mean something to me. I've made great relationships with people that I knew would have never talked to. I wake up in the morning and I obviously don't want to get out of bed. But, you know, once I do get out of bed, I actually enjoy coming to work. Because what it is that I do now is that I get to help other people experience a different way of living. And it doesn't get any better than that. You ever think about using? Does that ever pop into your head? Of course it does. Of course it does. This isn't something that you get cured from. It's not something that you get to get a certificate from or graduate from or like spend this certain amount of time and somebody says, here's your award, you're done with this. No. I used to think it's that that's the way that it was. It's not. I mean, there's days when it's, I mean, and there's not even a trigger to it. There's not. There's not even anything that, that goes wrong or like a bad day. Like even to this day, sometimes I go home on like a nice summer day and I'm sitting there, I'm playing with my dogs and I think, you know what? A three finger Jameson sounds awesome right now because not everything associated with alcohol and drugs was bad. Like there were some really good times too. But I know that once I even entertain that thought, and I let it become more than that 10 seconds that I give it to start with, that it's just downhill from there. I've done it over and over and over again. So yes, 
I don't think that anybody in recovery can honestly say to you that I do not ever think about drinking or using again. Yep, that's my experience as well. So if you had a piece of advice you'd give to somebody that might be listening, that may have a problem, they don't know if they have the problem, they might have a loved one they think has a problem, based on everything you've shared with me, what would be that piece of advice? It gets a lot better. It does get a lot better, but you have to work for it. My advice is that when you are ready, that you need to ask for help. You can't do this on your own. Every one of us who has tried has also failed. This is not something that you get to pray away. It's not something you get to will away. It's not something that you get to have a certificate from going to a 90-day treatment center. It's, it's something that you have to deal with every day. And it's not every day. It becomes much easier, but you have to be willing to ask for help. You cannot let pride stand in your way. Amen. Abe, thanks so much for taking the time uh, to share with us today. And thanks for keeping that share real. Absolutely. This podcast is being brought to you by Step Denver Men's Residential Addiction Recovery Program. Step Denver gives men with nowhere else to turn the opportunity to overcome the consequences of addiction through a program based on sobriety, work, accountability, and community. For more information, visit stepdenver.org.